Welcome to Green Shoots, hosted by the Arbor Group at UBS. My name is Jack O'Connor. And I'm Mike France. Green Shoots is a podcast that focuses on the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the people and organizations that are aligned with these objectives. Today, our extra special guest is Casey Golden. Casey is a champion of renewable energy and an active leader in the climate movement in the U.S. He's held board positions on 350.org, the U.S. Climate Action Network, and Evergreen Action. Casey has worked for the state of Washington, where he directed the state's energy policy office. He was executive director of the Northwest Energy Coalition in the early 90s. He then worked with Seattle City Light, the local utility, and helped them become the first major carbon-free electric utility in the U.S. He was also a senior policy advisor with Climate Solutions, and most recently, he was appointed to the Northwest Power and Conservation Council. Casey earned his bachelor's at UC Berkeley and then his master's in public policy at Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where he was a Kennedy Fellow. As always on the Green Shoots podcast, we're focused on how our guests are working towards achieving the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, of which Casey is notably focused on goals number 7 and 13, which are affordable and clean energy and climate action. Jack, Casey was also part of the executive board of Energy Northwest, a regional power consortium that includes a nuclear plant. I'm curious what his thoughts are on the future of nuclear power and whether there's a role for nuclear power to help transition away from fossil fuels. Without further ado, Casey Golden. Casey Golden, welcome to Green Shoots. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And thank you again for taking time to chat with us. This isn't your first rodeo with uh, the Arbor Group. You were a guest at one of our town hall events a few years ago. But for most of the folks that are listening that did not attend that event, curious, what prompted you to focus your time and resources on promoting clean energy and pro-climate policies? I'm guessing you were not a five-year-old uh, thinking that one day you'd become a, a climate act- activist. <laughs> no, but it does go back quite a little ways. I really got started in energy work as a raft guide when I found out they were planning to dam some of our favorite rivers. And so I was organizing with Friends of the River. I was organizing people who had just come off raft trips to help us stop these dams. So they were an eager audience. But I went from there to getting a deeper interest in energy and starting to get a sense of how deeply connected energy is to everything, to our our economic future, to health and equity, and certainly to the environment. And um, so I just started to focus more and more on energy over time. And by about 1990, when it was becoming pretty clear that we had a climate crisis on our hands. You know, energy is the key to solving the climate crisis. And so I was feeling pretty good about the fact that I had actually been trained to do what seemed to be most useful for what seemed to be the biggest challenge of our lifetimes. And now now that the comet has come more clearly into view, it's hard to imagine doing anything else. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I think a lot of people, myself included, you know, when I'm thinking about climate policy, all the emitters, GHG emissions, you know, it could certainly be overwhelming. So, you know, as a climate activist, where do you really start to get a grasp of the issue and how to solve it? Yeah. Well, first, you know, I think I guess I had a little bit of an advantage because with my energy training and my energy background, I sort of felt a sense of agency. I felt like I was equipped to dig in. And for so many people, I think that's that's the biggest stumbling block. It's not so much 
science denial per se. I think it's the sense that, wow, this is this is a little above my pay grade for most people. And it, it is really hard to get a foothold. So it's a great question. And I guess I would say a couple things about it. First, start and assume a sense of agency. This isn't a comment. This is 100% the result of human decisions about our infrastructure and our energy economy. And it's 100% susceptible to us making different and better decisions. I know that's hard to, you know, the scale of it is so big that it's hard to sort of accept that, you know, the things within any individual scope of effectiveness are really going to make that big of a difference. And indeed, as isolated individuals, we can't solve it. And so the second thing I would say about where to start is not just a sense of personal agency, but we really have to rebuild and hone and use our sense of collective agency as citizens for a problem at this scale. Personal responsibility obviously matters, but I think too often we sort of default into a sense of, you know, futility about it. We say, well, what can one individual do about a problem that big? And, you know, the answer turns out to be, if you frame the question that way, not all that much. The most important thing we can do as individuals, as my friend Bill McKibben likes to say, is be less of an individual. Think about how we solve big problems, big social problems together using our political institutions, our economic institutions, join the climate movement, and whatever it is you do within your personal scope of effectiveness, understand that and connect that to the larger movement that actually scales to the problem. And the third thing I would say, because we're at UBS, is divest financially. You may not have an an option to fossil fuels for how you get to work tomorrow, but you certainly have an option for what you do with your 401k or your, your retirement savings or your investment portfolio. For the most part, you'd be doing better had you divested your your portfolio five years ago. Um, Fossil fuels are not the future. And there's absolutely no reason that we need to continue to connect our personal financial well-being with the commercial success of an industry that's killing us. How much of a difference will it make if you divest? Well, again, if you did it, if that was all anybody did, maybe not that much. But we now have $40 trillion in assets around the world to com- committed to divestment. So that's starting to matter, I think, in financial circles. You guys would be better judges of that. And more than that, you know, I think if we fully stare at the comet, if we feel, fully look squarely in the eyes at the human consequences of failing to get our arms around this problem, the human consequences of continued fossil fuel dependence, I think what, you, what you'd say to yourself is, I don't care what anybody else does, my fingerprints aren't going to be on it. And they don't have to be. So that's a, a great place to start and a great place to start to free ourselves financially and otherwise from the sort of commercial cycles and the economic models that are killing us. Sure. And I just have a brief follow-up question just sort of related on something that you touched on in kind of your second point in that response, you know, about being less of an individual. I think it kind of seems to me like that's not necessarily something that particularly Americans uh, in general are very good at, and that could potentially explain why there's been more uh, climate action, for example, in the EU or in other places globally. So how do you kind of get people to potentially sacrifice in the near term what they want as an individual uh, for the greater good of the collective as a whole? Yeah, great question. And, you know, individualism is is deeply rooted in American culture. And I think we're now finding out both on the climate front and in, and in other ways, the limits of our ability to thrive and survive if we don't develop something more of a culture of collective 
commitment to our collective well-being. You know, when you say our willingness to sacrifice, there's no sacrifice greater than continuing on the path we're on toward unchecked climate disruption. And unfortunately, like most like most ills, physical or social, the consequences of that fall first and worst on the people who can least afford it. But even people of means shouldn't delude themselves into thinking that we're by any means immune from the consequences of climate change. I, you know, give you an example. I'm up here in the Medhow Valley where a lot of well-to-do Seattleites like to hang out and ski and have their summer places. And we just went through a summer of just appalling, if you, to not too much of a pun, I hope, smoke that affects the public health of, of everyone. It doesn't discriminate. And so, yes, you, there may be some things that you think of sacrifices to our personal lifestyle. I think there are an awful lot of things about a climate-friendly lifestyle that are going to be better. And I think we have to you know, look toward how to live well and live sustainably, knowing that living sustainably isn't, at the end of the day, a choice. We're either going to do it or we're not going to have workable, physical, and social and economic systems in which to live and thrive. So we have to do that. I'm very much an optimist that uh, sustainable lifestyles are actually going to serve us better and be healthier and better lifestyles. And I say that as somebody who just had the maiden voyage of my electric, my new electric, affordable electric vehicle over the mountains from Seattle to Mazama. And I got to tell you, electric cars are no sacrifice. They're just better. So there's every reason to believe that we can live well um, and live sustainably. Great, great insight, Casey. You know, one of the goals of the 2015 Paris Agreement is to limit the global temperature increase to one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial era temperatures. All the research that we read shows that we're most likely going to overshoot this target. What are your thoughts there? Well, I go back to my first point about agency, first of all. It's not a, it's not a research question. The answer isn't somewhere where the smartest analyst can find it. It is 100% a matter of what energy path we choose. You know, if you look at the IPC scenarios that you referred to in the 1.5 scenarios and the range of scenarios in the IPCC report about what level of temperature increase we, we could expect over the next century, and you, you look at it and it says, oh, well, it goes from 1.5 to 4.5. And the tendency is to conclude, wow, there's still a lot of scientific uncertainty about climate change. Well, the difference between 1.5 and 4.5 isn't scientific uncertainty. It's uncertainty about our emissions path. And our emissions path is 100% the product of the investment and in energy infrastructure choices we make. So the answer to the question, the likelihood of keeping things under 1.5, has everything to do with human will and public policy and whether we rapidly shift our investment patterns from fossil fuels to clean energy, which as a technical proposition, we can do. One doesn't want to be a Pollyanna about our political circumstances. The answer isn't just a technical answer, it's a political answer. And our, our political institutions are not rising to the occasion at anything like the speed that they need to. But again, political institutions and political reality at the end of the day is nothing but a whole lot of human choices. So those are the choices we have to make. You know, at this point, getting to 1.5, it would have been a lot better had we started when we first knew what we were up against. And it's, it's late in the game. But the final point I'll make about that is 
1.5, you know, where they got the 1.5 degrees is sort of the threshold at which scientists say a lot of the major life support systems of the planet start going haywire in, in really catastrophic and irreversible ways at that level. So not a good idea to cross that line. Having said that, once you cry, it's not a, it's not a binary thing. Once you cross 1.5 degrees, it's, oh, I guess we're screwed. So game over. You know, the difference between 1.5 and 2 is all the difference in the world. The difference between 2 and 2.5 is all the difference in the world. So if you do, you know, your analytical models and you go, geez, I don't see any way we're going to get to 1.5 given our political circumstances. You know, I, I, I challenge you to change our political circumstances, but I'd also tell you the difference between what we get if we fight as hard and are as innovative and committed and, and determined to transition to a clean energy future as, as fast as we can. And what we get if we just throw up our hands and say, well, I guess it's too late, is all the difference in the world. I mean, it's hundreds of millions of lives. It's whether any place is going to be habitable. So there's still plenty of fight worth having after 1.5 if we don't meet that threshold. Sure. So, you know, kind of digging into that a little bit more. Yeah, I was recently reading a report by the International Energy Agency or the IEA, as a lot of people know it. Uh, and it was stating that investment in renewable energy needs to triple, uh, you know, totally triple by 2030 to curb climate change uh, while keeping volatile energy markets under control. And I certainly think kind of that second part about keeping energy markets under control has gotten a little bit more prominent over the last year because, you know, natural gas, oil, gasoline prices has certainly gone up uh, significantly. So, you know, what further action needs to occur to make that a reality? And where do you see the funding coming from? The short answer is the funding comes from our energy dollars. We spend a lot of money on energy. We just spend it on the wrong stuff. I mean, you look at this Build Back Better package, which has what, $550 billion-ish over 10 years for clean energy stuff. And it's obviously, it's very much, uh, that's, that's not a done deal, to put it mildly. But even if it happened, $555 billion over 10 years for climate in public money, order of magnitude, more public money than we've ever seen put into climate stuff. Half a trillion dollars over 10 years, huge, right? Well, half a trillion dollars over 10 years, over that same period of time, we're going to spend over 20 trillion just with our energy dollars. We're going to put it into the gas pump. We're going to send it to the utility. We spend over a trillion dollars in the U.S., every year on energy. And, you know, the big question, the, the fateful question on climate is how fast can we redirect that money away from the problem and toward the solutions? I don't mean to minimize the importance of the public money. It's super important for a bunch of things, making sure the transition is equitable, making sure that we're funding the research and development that's hard to fund, you know, just with private money or that utilities can't take the risk to fund. But the overwhelming majority of the money comes from repurposing the energy money that we're already, to my mind, throwing down a rat hole on fossil fuels and spending more and more of it on renewables. And there's every reason to believe that we can meet our energy needs at equivalent or lower costs if we get away from those volatile fossil fuel markets. You know, at the, the end of the day, uh, the cost curves on solar and wind 
and electric cars have just been unbelievably impressive. And the reason that we can expect them to continue to come down and be more economical over the long haul is that renewable energy is, you know, the capital, you've got capital costs like any energy form, but the fuel is free and essentially unlimited. It is intermittent. And so you got to think about storage and system balance and all that good stuff, but it cannot be monopolized. It cannot be manipulated. It cannot be subject to the kind of of politically and commercially manipulated price swings that fossil fuels will always be subject to because um, because that's where that's that's why they call it the prize right once you own all the fossil fuels then you you can and do manipulate markets to your advantage one of the great beauties of the clean energy transition is you know the sun's been out there shining without a significant interruption for four and a half billion years and every day it delivers uh, enough solar energy to the planet to power all human needs for a year. Once we get a little bit more efficient and economical uh, about harvesting that solar energy, it's just inherently a much more economical and economically stable energy platform, in addition to being the only platform that works from a climate perspective. Sure. And since you uh, kind of mentioned that uh, about solar and integrating that, uh, can you talk a little bit more about how electrification comes into all of this in detail? Yeah. So the sort of shorthand, the technical shorthand for how we're going to solve the bulk of the climate problem, how we're going to decarbonize, if you will, is to decarbonize electricity supply. So move more higher and higher percentages of our electricity supply and ultimately all of it over to sources that don't emit any carbon to the atmosphere. And then shift as many of our energy uses as possible over to electricity. And the reason for that is, again, that we do know how to electrify, how to decarbonize electricity economically at scale. Decarbonizing liquid fuels is much harder. There is some potential to do that sustainably, but it's much more modest, I would say. And you you ought to think about, to the extent that we can decarbonize liquid fuels sustainably, we ought to reserve that pretty finite supply of decarbonized liquid fuels for the sectors like aviation and uh, some freight sectors that are the hardest to electrify. And so that's, that's sort of a nutshell of a comprehensive vision of how we end the fossil fuel age and move on to a decarbonized supply. And I I think people are pretty familiar with the challenge of sort of switching electricity supply from coal to renewable resources. We can talk about that more. But then we need to add, urgently add, the challenge of switching transportation and building energy consumption over to electricity, which means dramatically increasing electricity supply to serve the vast majority of our end-use energy consumption. So one of the things that you've been spending some time focusing on has been calling for global financial institutions to stop lending to fossil fuel producers. And since you've started that campaign a couple of years ago, have you seen any changes in lending practices by those major banks? Yeah. Well, we had a, an indirect answer, as I mentioned before. We're, we're now at $40 trillion of assets that have committed to move away from fossil fuels around the world. Those aren't the banks per se, so it's not a direct answer to your question. It's mostly institutional investors, pension funds, universities, that kind of thing. But obviously, that has an effect on the commercial banking institutions as well. At the big climate summit that just concluded, one of the important things that did get done was a commitment to end public finance 
for fossil fuel development around the world? And that's a part of the answer to your question. Obviously, private finance is much bigger around the world, and it has not made that commitment or anything like the scale. But the complete commitment to stop financing of, of public financial institutions like the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, and such, to stop financing not only coal, which we were already kind of getting to, but all fossil fuels around the world relatively quickly, I think is an important step and an important harbinger of where private money is likely to go as well. I've been disappointed, to be honest, at the pace with which commercial lending institutions and private banks are moving in this direction. But you're going to certainly going to see increasing focus and pressure from the climate movement on financial institutions to do that. Financial institutions, financial regulators, we have a big campaign on the Federal Reserve to move in this direction. And I think you'll see more and more pressure, you know, more organic pressure coming from the market itself. You know, if you think about the risk profile, and it's part of the reason I focus so heavily on electrification, especially of transportation, I think that there's an enormous amount of risk already associated with fossil fuel investment. But once we demonstrate and accelerate the process of replacing oil in transportation with electricity, then I think the prospect of stranded fossil fuel assets comes more and more into focus. The other driver that I hope is really going to accelerate very quickly here is liability. We have many local jurisdictions now suing fossil fuel companies to recover the costs of their climate-related damages and their climate-related infrastructure investments. And, you know, between the acceleration of competition that's just going to displace these fossil fuel assets, increasing will around the world for public policy, again, not at the pace I'd like to see, and the prospect that fossil fuels might actually have to face their true costs, might have to internalize some of the damage that they cause. I just think you're seeing an increasingly large and dangerous financial bubble. At what point does it make more sense to start to ease air out of the bubble? At what point does it make more sense for individual lending institutions to get out rather than you know ride the last round of inflation of the bubble? You guys probably have a better sense than that. But I think the writing is getting clearer and bolder on the wall. Yeah, I certainly agree with all of that. And when you were kind of responding there, you briefly touched on the COP26, the conference that was held in Glasgow in November. I wanted to briefly get your thoughts on the broader outcomes of the conference. You know, do you think there was actual progress made there? And if not, what concrete steps do you wish would have come out of that? You know, the the cops, like Congress, are always behind the curve on this stuff. I have come to think of them as a lagging indicator of public will, but they're still a very, a very important indicator. Again, to quote Bill McKibben again, he, when we were in Paris, he said the cop is the, the scoreboard, not the game. And I think that's very much true. I think the game is public will. I think the game is popular movements. I think the game is private innovation and commercialization of better alternatives. And the cop will always measure our progress in important ways. It will never lead our progress. It'll never be the cutting edge. And even having said that, I was still disappointed with the outcomes of this COP. I think it's very important to say at the outset that the biggest thing that has always held back the success of the international negotiations, which really began in earnest with a a treaty to which the U.S. is a signatory in 1991, the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change. These COPs are meetings of the parties to that framework convention, which is 
basically all the countries of the world. And the the biggest fact that has always held back progress and continues to hold back progress is that the United States, the largest historical emitter, the biggest cause of the problem, has never shown up at those meetings having passed a national climate law. Occasionally, we've had an administration like the Obama administration that seems to be sincere about its commitment, but it was never able to get anything through Congress. And once again, the president you know, begged as he got on the plane, Congress to not let him arrive in Glasgow empty-handed. And once again, Congress has not delivered a national climate policy. That is always going to hold back the international progress for very obvious reasons. So the good news about that is, again, if you're an American and you're committed to getting our political systems to deliver on our collective will better than it does, we've got the ace in the hole for the international negotiations. But the result this time is, and every time, is bound to be disappointing until we get it together to pass a national climate law. Quickly, a couple of things that were accomplished and that are important. It was the first COP where there was meaningful and direct discussion about not just you know reducing emissions, but actually winding down fossil fuel development. And that's, you know, it's this stuff isn't rocket science. That's the key. Right. This commitment by international financial institutions to stop lending, I think, is a huge early sign. But when they got to the language about countries actually winding down fossil fuel development, they pussyfooted around it. And the language ended up being quite weak. But it's the first time that there was direct language about starting to intervene on the supply side to reduce fossil fuel development. You know, John Maynard Keynes said something that uh, comes back to me a lot in this business. The difficulty lies not so much in coming up with new ideas. The difficulty is in escaping the old ideas. <laughs> and I think that's very much what you see playing out now. You know, over the last 30 years, we didn't pass national climate policy, but we advanced the clean energy revolution to the point where it's now there are no technological or commercial obstacles to making this transition. But we still do have the entrenched residual economic and political power of the incumbent fossil fuel industries. And it holds us back in Congress. It holds us back in the international negotiations. And I think these first commitments to start winding down fossil fuel development are not nearly enough and they're critically important. The final thing I want to mention about the negotiations, again, the first time it was discussed, is the, this idea of loss and damage, which is part of the international treaty, but has never gotten a meaningful airing. You know, the bill is coming due. The Philippines right now, again, is a mess after the last typhoon. The costs of climate-related damages in this country and around the world are escalating. They were caused by the world's rich countries. They are disproportionately borne by the world's poor countries. And if there's going to be any meaningful global justice and global agreement to move forward, it's going to have to include some kind of compensation for those damages. And I have to say that it's not just a matter of sort of justice or reparation or retribution, although that is terribly important. It's also a matter of how we start to fully internalize and have accountability for the full costs of fossil fuel development. So when financial markets are making these decisions about what direction to go forward, we do it with a full accounting for what it costs to fail to make this transition so that we don't just focus on the side of the ledger of the costs of the transition.
So that was an important development as well. But all in all, you know, a, a disappointing result, to be honest. And and if you want to fix it for next time, focus on Congress. Yeah, I think that all sounds right to me. And I was listening to some interviews with attendees of the Glasgow conference that weren't from the United States. And one of the things that kind of kept coming up was the fact that every four or eight years or so uh, in the United States, it seems like you have, you know, politicians that come in that are driving the car in completely different directions. You know, so I kind of have to wonder how much that affects, you know, with global thoughts on how the United States is actually committed to making long-term commitments, I guess, to fixing the issue. It does, boy. You know, if you ever get a chance to go to one of these things, it's really an education about what it means to be an American in the world. You know, we've become so so cynical about our political institutions, and we reduce our own expectations prospectively. We've just learned the hard way not to expect too much from our political institutions. But you go to one of these meetings and you talk to your colleagues around the world and they know all about the filibuster. They know all about disproportional representation in the Senate. They know all about the dysfunction of the U.S. political system. And they're not having any of our excuses about why we can't fix it. You know, we, we may not expect that much of ourselves, but the rest of the world doesn't have any alternative. But to continue to expect that the country that has done the most to cause the problem and the country that arguably can and should do the most to advance solutions needs to come to the table and come to the come to the party with both feet in a national climate policy and and they continue to expect that even when we expect less of ourselves it's actually a good sort of a good prep talk about what it means to be a citizen of this country and you know i hope i hope it uh, helps people you know raise our own sights and remind us how important it continues to be that this country step into a leadership role. And so bringing this a little bit closer to home as a resident of the state of Washington, in 2019, the state passed one of the most ambitious clean energy laws in the country. It requires utilities to eliminate coal-derived electricity by 25, carbon-neutral energy by 2035. It provides incentives for utilities to invest in EV infrastructure, energy efficiency, and programs for lower-income consumers. Curious, first of all, if you believe the targets are possible to achieve on our current trajectory, and is this a model that can be replicated in more states around the country? They are absolutely possible. And um, one of the things that I, I, I notice a lot is when I talk to the media or when I talk to legislators, when I go and testify at a committee, it's uh, the popular poli and political discussion about where we're at in the energy world and the energy transition is a good 10 or 15 years behind the reality of what's going on in energy technology and energy markets. It is clearly possible, especially in a state like Washington, and some of the skeptics in your audience might fairly point out that, well, Washington's got all that hydropower. It's easier for Washington to reach a target like this than any other state. And it's a fair point. I will point out that the hydropower, A, is not without its own problems. B, it didn't build itself. It was the result of long-term investment in renewable energy. And the lesson for now isn't go build a bunch of more dams. We kind of did that. The lesson is long-term investment in renewable energy supplies actually turns out pretty well. Our power system is the cheapest and our air is some of the cleanest, before the forest fires at least, in the world because we made those long-term investments in renewable energy. Not a lot more dams to build, but lots more long-term investment in renewable energy. And the Northwest stands as a shining example of the benefits of doing that. Um, so particularly for us, it's achievable. 
And, you know, you say it's one of the most ambitious clean energy laws in the country, and that's true, and I'm proud of it. It is, you know, in this, because we got started so late uh, on this climate challenge, it is simultaneously true that it's one of the best things out there and it's not enough. It's not fast enough. It's not ambitious enough. And it's a terrific step in the right direction. So I want to hold those truths simultaneously. And I want to fault the legislators for this great step. And hopefully it'll give us the confidence we need to accelerate even further. The one thing I I will say about it, just looping back to our earlier discussion, is it speaks to the decarbonize the electricity half of the challenge that we sort of articulated at the beginning. It's decarbonize the electricity and electrify everything. So decarbonizing the electricity supply, we now have a ton of studies on how we can do that cost effectively. And I think it's widely accepted that it's feasible. Shifting all the other energy uses over to the electricity system and then providing enough carbon-free electricity to, you know, basically dominate our energy supplies across the sectors, including transportation. That's a bigger challenge to which this bill doesn't address itself all that much. So looking forward at our next big challenges, you know, we've got a big federal power marketing agencies that can help drive this transition. We've got a regional power planning council. We've got all these public utilities. We've got all this existing hydropower that is actually very helpful in solving some of these intermittence and storage problems. We should really be looking toward cutting edge policies to drive this transition toward electrification. And I got to say, it's early days on that. I mean, to me, it feels like the one super catalytic tippy thing in this whole energy equation. So often, you know, these changes are slow and incremental. And unfortunately, from a climate perspective, we need fast changes. We need step changes. And that's not usually the way change happens. Electrification, however, you know, the car companies are beginning to make very big bets. Europe is already, you know, very high penetration of electric cars. The technology is just better. So when those electric F-150s start rolling around, everybody's going to want them. Our electric utilities, our public policy, our electric planning, you know, infrastructure, Bonneville Power Administration, I don't think they're they're ready for the pace of acceleration we need. And they should not only be ready for it, they should be driving it. So that's what I'm looking toward as the next, you know, big piece of the policy challenge. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you too, is there a place for nuclear power in the energy grid? So I'm not sure if you mentioned it in the bio. I sat on the board of the only operating nuclear plant in the Northwest, the Columbia Generating Station. And the way I would break it down is this. I have fought a lot of nuclear plants in my time, and the Northwest in particular had a terrible experience. As anybody in the financial world knows, the Northwest Nuclear Program touched off the largest municipal bond default in American history up to that time. And uh, Wall Street remembers that. (laughs) And so I would say that there is no room at all for any investment or expansion of the current generation of nuclear power plants. They have proven themselves to be uneconomic, even if you think they're completely safe. They're just not remotely in the money for competitive new sources of electricity supply. So I think I think that's a dead letter. I think Wall Street knows that. I think utilities know that. To be honest, I'm not that worried about it. I think it's possible that somebody's going to put in some giant federal subsidy to build, you know, something maybe in the southeast or there's some countries that are looking at it. But I think the days of the current generation of nuclear power supply are through. Then the question is, 
should we retire existing nuclear plants? I think that's a tougher question. And I think for right now, to the extent that they're operating economically and safely, I'm not super eager to accelerate their retirement personally. And I would otherwise like to, but I think given you know the scale and pace of the climate challenge, I think we ought to scratch our heads about that. And then there's the whole new generation of nuclear technology. And there's a bunch of different flavors of that, the small modular nuclear reactors, some of the stuff that Bill Gates and others are investing in. And I guess what I would say about that is, A, they're nowhere near commercialization. And I think the proponents of them would concede to that. So there's a lot more work to be done before we know if they're potentially safe and economical. I think it's okay to do that work to find out, but I don't think it should distract us from the huge immediate focus uh, financially and logistically on developing and deploying and integrating the technologies that we already have that are commercially available and cost-effective. So no harm in doing some more R&D, especially to the extent that people can afford to swing for the fences and miss for a while, are underwriting that kind of R&D. I think that's probably useful. The one thing I would add that often gets missed from the conversation. People talk about safety, people talk about cost, people talk about waste disposal. Those are all important challenges that the nuclear proponents need to overcome. It could conceivably be done and and we'll see. The one thing that you don't hear as much about that really concerns me is proliferation. Existing and some future commercial power technology is inseparably connected to the nuclear fuel cycle that produces nuclear weapons. And that's why you have, you know, these tense negotiations with Iran. That's why you have the continued threat of proliferation around the world. A good test, a good rule of thumb for how we ought to think about energy technologies in a climate, in a world where we're trying to solve climate change is if you put the word proliferation after the technology, how does it make you feel? Solar proliferation, great. We want solar to proliferate. That's a good thing. Nuclear proliferation, you know, if you got to have all these complicated and dicey national security arrangements and treaties and whatnot, you know, it's not necessarily something we want to proliferate. And the, the key thing about the energy challenge now is it's inherently global. We cannot rely on new technologies that we don't want other people to have. We need to have, that's the whole, you know, sort of framework for the international treaty is we can't just say, okay, we're going to have these extremely dangerous technologies that only the rich countries are allowed to have, and we're not going to let it proliferate around the world. We want to favor technologies that we want everybody to have. So nuclear's got a big hurdle on that front, but let's keep our minds and eyes and ears open to what comes out of the research and development. But in the meantime, the overwhelming focus of deployment and expenditure and development needs to be on the cost-effective solutions that are already in hand that we're not deploying fast enough. Great way to end our, our session together, Casey. And you've been so generous with your time today. And this conversation, we talked about a lot of different things related to climate policy and very thankful for the discussion with you today. So with that, appreciate you having on the show and, and look forward to keeping the conversation going next time. Really great to be with you. I hope the sound quality held up over my uh, remote connection and I hope it's uh, of interest to your folks. I'm really glad you guys are covering this stuff. Thank you. All righty, take care. Well, Jack, that was an interesting discussion with Casey today. You know, one of the things that... Um, I wish we would have touched on a little bit is just about uh, energy security and national uh, energy policy as it pertains to just our overall national security needs. 
you know, we're seeing this situation between Russia and Ukraine. Europe is dependent on Russia for their energy needs. And it seems, I think one of the things that gets lost in the renewable energy discussion, or at least it has over the last couple of years, is just the need to have local sources of, of energy that we can rely on and not be so dependent on our adversaries for our energy needs. What was your big takeaway? Yeah, I think those are great points. And I, I definitely think some of our older listeners that lived through the 70s are probably seeing some parallels with the oil crises that uh, occurred during that decade. But for me, I think my main takeaway is I got a little bit of a new perspective when we had the discussion around energy investment and how we need to spend roughly triple the amount that we currently are on renewables in order to stave off or mitigate the major impacts of a warming climate. You know, the fact is we spend so much on energy every year. So so a lot of this isn't actually new spending. It's more of a shift that needs to be made in terms of what we are spending. And so over decades, I think a lot of this is going to net out due to the sun and wind being free. And also when you factor in that the external costs aren't built into the current cost of energy, but we know natural disasters are happening more frequently and costing more. So at some point, the decision needs to be made if we want to make that upfront investment or just pay a lot more in the long run. Great insight as always, Jack. Well, that's it for this episode of Green Shoots. Be sure to check out our other interviews on Spotify. Until next time, so long, farewell, Avita Zengabai. Bye.